Good afternoon, my friends. The doctor is in the house. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G on this glorious Wednesday, because why not be grateful every day? Hey, I'm so excited to welcome you guys back to my show. This show today, I tell you what, I say it every week, and I mean it this time. This show is going to be fierce. I've been wanting to do an OBGYN show for many months now, and I'm a big believer that the universe comes together to show, uh, to, to bring people together, and it comes together for a reason. So the show is coming here today, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Really, when I think about OBGYN, I think about women's health, but I think about not just women's health, just I think really, really it as the foundation for well-being. And my panelists today, I'm sure they would definitely agree with that. But I'm so excited to bring this show. This show is about continuing this health revolution that we're on. We're all about still trying to build trust and deliver truth. And we're all about making sure that you, at the end of the day, have the tools to be successful with your health. When you have success in your health, you're more likely to have successful opportunities present themselves in your life. And so I'm so excited to welcome everybody back to another show today. You're listening to us here live in the studio at Intellectual Radios. We're on Facebook. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. I'm so excited for today. Hey, today's Gold Level sponsor is Suburban Gastroenterology LTD. Check him out, www.sgihealth.com. So I'm so excited for today's show because this is something that both men and women can get something out of it. Again, fellas, learn something about your wife today. Learn something about your girlfriend. Learn something about mom or, or anybody. But anybody that you care about, this show is about creating that opportunity, creating that voice. And even though we're talking today, I do not want this conversation to stop today. This has to be a conversation that is going to keep going on day in and day out. Again, it takes a village. It takes a community. We're here today to, to spread a message of opportunity and certainly a message of equity when we talk about our health. So I'm so excited for today's show. You're going to meet my guests in a few moments. Before you meet my guests, i got to read you a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So here we are. We're continuing this health revolution. And go ahead and use that hashtag today. Hashtag health revolution. Hashtag building trust, delivering truth. Hashtag OBGYN. But we want to keep this message going on today. So I like how we're going to do it today. Today's format's going to be broken down into a couple different sections. We're going to talk about preventive health in OBGYN. We're going to talk about pregnancy and contraception. We're going to talk about perimenopause and menopause. And we're going to talk about some sexual health. But we want to set the record straight. And I'm so excited later on the show that we're going to be breaking down the myths versus facts because we're really going to set the record straight. We want everybody to have that opportunity for health success. So I want to introduce my guest today. The panel is fierce. I've known both guests for a long time now, but I want to tell you a little bit of a background story how I know them. So I want to introduce my first guest who's here in studio, Dr. Kimberly Derry. I got to meet Kim within the past year or so. Actually, was, I take it back. It's been a couple years. When we met on a diversity council, mm -hmm. and we're talking about equity and opportunity uh, for people of all health, all faiths, uh, any just people as humans getting adequate health care. And we've been lucky to have a health care system with our hospital that is embracing inclusion and diversity. And so 
Kim and I, we've been friends ever since. We see each other at these meetings, uh, and we're just going to continue this, this collaboration moving forward. So I want to introduce Dr. Kim Derry. I'm going to read you her credentials because her credentials run deep. Dr. Kimberly Derry, MD, FACOG. She's a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. She's the medical director of obstetrics at Elmhurst Hospital, which is part of Edward Elmhurst Health. Check her out at www.eehealth.com. Org. Dr. Derry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Hey, I'm so excited that you're here, and we've been talking about trying to do this. We've been talking about meeting in life, but not only in here, too. We're going to, we're going to set something up for life, mm-hmm. uh, because we got to continue to work together for some great, great collaboration with our families and in life and everything in friendship. So, Dr. Derry, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you go to medical school? Where did you do your residency? And then tell us why you chose to go into OBGYN. Okay, great. Uh, so um, I am a native Chicagoan and um, grew up on the south side. Um, I went to Xavier University in Louisiana and um, I actually became a chemist for seven years and uh, kind of made a full transition in my life and went to medical school kind of later in life. Um, I went to medical school at uh, Rosin Franklin, which is what it's called now. Back when I was there, it was called Chicago Medical School. Um, and then from there, um, <clears throat> I... Uh, actually wasn't sure about obstetrics. I, I kind of thought, you know, not really sure. But I did my rotation and I absolutely loved it. I love the variety. I love being able to talk to women about their bodies. Uh, because unfortunately, our body is very complex. We go through waxing and weighing of different symptoms throughout our entire lives. And no one actually gives us a clue of what that means. So from there, we uh, I decided to go into obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, did a residency at St. Joseph Hospital in uh, Chicago. And... Um, Landed a um, couple positions out in the west suburbs, and I'm hey. currently here at uh, Elmhurst. Hey, that is excellent. What a journey. And actually, you know, I did not know you had the chemistry background. That is awesome. See, you know, every day is an opportunity to learn something, but to listen to your others, listen to your fellow human being, and, and, and really get to know them. And I think this is a great opportunity. I had this discussion, not only knowing you as from a personal level and then some of the professional advice that you can offer, but this is just really awesome. I'm just really about the power of connectedness, which is great. So thank you, Dr. Derry. Thank you. I want to welcome my next guest. She's joining us here live on the phone. I've known her for a long time, too. i got to give you a quick uh, background story. Uh, my next guest, uh, Liz Gall, she and I met when my wife was pregnant with our first child. And so uh, I've got two uh, amazing kids, a seven-and-a-half-year-old uh, daughter named Ava, my son who's five, named Evan. But uh, Liz uh, was really intimately involved in the continuum, continuum of care for my wife and I, and uh, it's just been an awesome thing. And I'm trying to think, Liz, you may have actually called me uh, when you when uh, my wife went to see you before our daughter was born, and uh, you might have called me on the phone in the office and said, go to Edward Hospital. Uh, and I remember because we went dancing two days before, and then she went in and, ch- and checked you out, and he said, yeah, you're going to have this baby suit. So I want to <laughs> welcome a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Gall, uh, she's a nurse practitioner with Edward Medical Group, Edward Elmer's Health. Check her out at www.eehealth.org. Liz, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on today. It's great talking to you. Hey, it's great talking to you, too. So, so I mean, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to help share this mission and the spread of message. So, Liz, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How, where did you do your schooling, and how did you get into this path of uh, being an OBGYN provider? So I did my undergraduate in biology at Benedictine University here locally, 
And I also did research for a short period of time in microbiology, trying to figure out where my role would be in healthcare, knowing that somehow I'd find my way there. And I figured out nursing was my calling and went to Marquette for graduate school and worked as an ICU nurse, believe it or not, knowing that somehow I'd wind up in women's health. I don't know what particularly about women's health drew me to this area. I enjoyed watching my sister through her pregnancies. She has four wonderful children, and I went to a lot of her visits with her and was there for the birth of her children, and I just felt a connection to pregnancy and childbirth. And also, I think just the women in my life, um, seeing <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> their lack of, of self-care, and I think that I just felt like I needed to find a way to put myself in a position to make sure that women were kind of paying more attention to themselves and giving themselves self-care and, and prioritizing their health. Excellent. Well, hey, I'm so glad to have you on the show, Liz. I can't wait to get a little more granular in some of these uh, details that we're going to be talking about today. So here you have it, everybody. You guys just met the panel. And, and really what you're going to find out about the, my panels today and about this topic is that, yes, my panelists, they're clin clinicians by day, but they're very caring individuals and they're educators. And so each day they have the opportunity to help shape health and to shape, help shape the decisions that we make for our families and for our communities. So I just love it that, you, that you're both here today. We're going to have a great time. So how the show works, you just met the panel. What I do is I say, hey, we're going to talk about the chief complaint. We call it in medicine. That's when somebody comes into the office with a particular uh, uh, condition or a complaint of that day. And basically the chief complaint or the question of the hour that we're dealing with today is... The OBGYN is a highly skilled clinician and possesses a deep knowledge base. What are the common questions related to women's bodies and health? And how I kind of formulated this, and I've been in clinical practice for 12 years now, so I've had a lot of questions asked to me, and then I kindly refer that person to uh, an OBGYN, because I may not know the answer, but I've kind of formulated these questions about things that that I see myself that are commonly asked to me as a primary care physician, and then, but, but questions that undoubtedly my two guests are asked all the time. So we want to really help set the record straight on everything that we're talking about today. So I'm going to ask the first question to Dr. Derry. Uh, well, it's not necessarily a question, but let's, let's set the record straight first, then we'll ask the question. Describe a typical day in your practice. Okay. Uh, well, I have a, a unique opportunity right now. Um, I've been in clinical practice for over 10 years. Um, I have uh, worked in, um, the, in the clinic. I've done surgery, gynecology surgery, obstetric surgery. I have recently taken a position as an OB hospitalist, which means that I actually run the labor and delivery unit. Um, I do a lot of um, educational initiatives. We do a lot of uh, quality and safety for our obstetric unit. And I actually have a great opportunity to work with people that don't have doctors uh, and, and providing that excellent care to everyone, regardless of who they are, where they come from. And it's just been a really glorious position that I've been in now. And I talk about, you know, you're talking about being fulfilled now and things are coming full closed for you right now. That's yes. great. Hey, Liz, what's the typical day like you for you? I have a pretty diverse day in the office. I see a variety of patients. You know, it's a good split between OB patients, some concerns of a variety of gynae issues, a lot of well woman visits, which are my favorite. And, you know, I'm interacting a lot with the staff, whether it's our triage nurses trying to handle some of the problems that they're taking in the phone calls. 
a little bit of scheduling help to where can I put these patients. We don't have availability sometimes. So working with the front desk to try to figure out where to squeeze procedures in. So just a good mix of, of all the types of patients that we see in the office to try to maneuver people in so they don't have to wait too long to get into the office. Excellent. So I mentioned a few moments ago that you both really really promote education because really that's a cornerstone to our, our well-being and really setting the record straight. So let me ask this kind of general question to Dr. Derry uh, before we get into some of these topics of OB. But this is more of a general standpoint. How do we, you know, how do we promote better health in the communities that we serve? The reality is that you know, you all both, both of you see patients that have complex medical history. We know there's the rise of diabetes, the obesity epidemic. We know people are having high blood pressure, things like that. But how do you kind of, how, what just generally, what do you think we need to be doing better to get our health back on track as a whole? Right. Well, I would say the, the, the best thing I advice, and I give this to my family, friends, is continuity of care. Like, you know, having that, that continuum of, of doctors and providers that actually work on your behalf. A lot of people go to this hospital, that hospital, this clinic, that clinic, this pharmacy, that pharmacy, and so their, their information is spread out all over and it's hard to connect the dots. So the more complex your health is, the harder it is for someone to put it together. And the, the worst thing that's been happening now is people are using their health care in the emergency room, and they're really not... Uh, really getting the care that they think that they deserve and frankly the ER is not the place to get that kind of preventative care and really kind of connect connecting the dots. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have a, have a big challenge going on right now and making sure that the use of resources is appropriate. Uh, on the flip side, I know I understand when people are just saying, hey, I need to get seen, you know, and certainly ERs are 24-7, 365. There's no doubt about it, but this underscores the point that, hey, if you don't have a primary care physician or we don't have a lot of OBGYN uh, providers do uh, primary care as well too, uh, can manage cholesterol, things like that, but see someone. Mm-hmm. Liz, what's it like from your end when you're talking about just, just the communities getting healthier? What's your thoughts on that? I agree completely. I think continuity of care is extremely important. I think our system as a whole is doing a really good job trying to open access to care and trying to um, make ourselves available to you know, getting people in as quickly as possible from specialty to specialty, whether it's reaching out to other specialties to help our patients see other providers faster. Um, I think that it's, it's tough. It's hard to maneuver as a patient. And I think that people put a lot of trust in the healthcare system and also just don't understand a lot of it. And so I think that we have to do better in trying to be more involved in, in making sure that they can connect the dots. And I think we're doing our best, and I think we're getting there. But um, I think that it's it's still a tough system to maneuver through. Yeah, we still have work to do. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I created the show was to have a forum to talk about not only identifying problems, but hopefully come with some practical solutions that can then be applied on a daily basis by people, not only just clinicians, coming together to collaborate ideas, and I'm like, I love hearing what you guys have to say, but I want to hopefully this message continues to go. As I said in the beginning, this conversation cannot end today. So let's get right into some of these other kind of questions. Now you, now you guys have gotten a sense of, of what my guests are about, and also what I'm about too, and it's really education and, and continue to provide opportunity. So here we go. I told, I told you guys that we're going to break down these questions into kind of prevention, uh, pregnancy, 
uh, contraception, perimenopause, menopause, and sexual health. So I want to go through some of these questions because I think these are important themes that are coming up that I see, certainly see and things that you guys certainly see in your practice. So I'm going to start out with Liz. I got you on the phone. Liz, here we go. Preventive medicine question. What is a pap test? So the pap smear is a test basically to screen for cervical cancer. So we're trying to get some cells from your cervix, testing for cells that could lead to cancer or, or are that can, you know, are cancerous cells, essentially. Excellent. But by the way, let me ask you a follow-up question. When, when does a woman start getting a pap test? We're starting at 21. All right. Excellent. So let me ask you this. I'm going to ask Dr. Derry this question. So I see it in my practice quite a bit where we may have gaps in care. And you might have a woman that has gone a long time uh, without a pap smear. Maybe, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get questions. I'll be like, hey, when's your last pap? I might meet somebody for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they might be in their 40s. And they say, oh, ah, when my last child was born, mm-hmm. how, old's your, how old's your child? Oh, he's uh, 16. Uh, so so what do you do about that? Because I know that's really laughing right now, but that's totally those kind of stories that you get. And so how do you start closing some of those gaps on things? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or this for you. Get, oh, okay. Yeah. How do you close some of those gaps in those care and yeah. make sure that women get these appropriate screening tests? Yeah, and, and, and part, of the, part of this, too, is helping patients understand that just because you feel okay, you still have to get some preventative health and uh, health care. And screening is super important. Um, a lot of, and this is where that kind of health literacy kicks in, where we just try to teach people, hey, just because you wake up every day, you have a heartbeat, that, you know, that's great, but there's so much more that could we could screen to make sure that down the line there isn't a problem. You shouldn't wait for symptoms in order to go to the doctor. And so a lot of women, absolutely, they have their last pap smear with their last baby, and they and then they think they're done. And uh, part of that is uh, very complicated because uh, a lot of women don't start coming to the doctor until they start having some more changes in their lives. And then uh-huh. we're now in that 40, 50-year-old range where now their bodies are changing dramatically, and so they seek care, and then they realize that there may be some other things going on because they haven't had preventative screening. Wow, wow. So, I mean, going back to the, the, the foundation, uh, and I would say see a doc, see your provider, um, but step one, continue to invest in yourself as far as your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me ask this question uh, back right back at you, Dr. Derry. Is there a time frame when a woman should stop getting a pap smear? Uh well, uh, the recommend, current recommendations are to uh, stop uh, at age 65 if you've never had any abnormal pap smears in the past. Um, the disclaimer that I tell a lot of patients is uh, there are a lot of active seniors. <laughs> and uh, some active seniors are uh, quite active, and uh, they may change partners, uh, and it happens. They're not worried about pregnancy. Uh, so if I have that active senior that is, you know, uh, starting to get some uh, some more uh, action going on, if you will, um, I actually tell them, hey, you know, let me just do a baseline again because I just want to make sure uh, STDs are on the rise for uh, uh, senior, senior citizens. And uh, that is real. And uh, as we all know, our immune systems go down, so we don't clear a lot of things as quickly. So uh, HPV, which is the human uh, papillomavirus, kicks in, and some of them actually start having some um, abnormalities. So I kind of get a good history, and this is, once again, that relationship building you have to say, hey, I want to know what's going on. You know, are things different? Um, You know, your partner might now be uh, using some, um, you know, 
<laughs> male enhancing pills that suddenly your yes. life is, has changed and, and you're now sexually active and may not have been for 20 years. So a lot of those things change, but your body may need to have some additional screening. Excellent. Hey, Liz, let me ask you this question. Uh, we mentioned HPV, human papillomavirus, uh, and certainly it's, contra uh, it's, it's uh, highly uh, contagious. Um, what do you see in as far as like from a prevention standpoint, let me change the mindset a little bit. What do we know about the HPV vaccine? What is it? And what do we, what do we know about it? And how are we kind of creating the awareness about it? I think that advertising actually has gone up pretty significantly for the HPV vaccine. I think that pediatricians' offices and OB-GYNs are definitely starting to, you know, be proponents for the vaccine a lot more now. And so that's the, the vaccine for the, you know, HPV, which is the sexually transmitted virus, which can cause the anogenital cancers and genital warts. So it's an important one. Excellent. I know I, from a primary care standpoint, uh, I tell my patient, I go, the HPV vaccine is essentially a cancer vaccine, meaning that uh -huh. you're going to lower your risk. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get to put it out there like that and, and say, listen, you know, we tell like our, uh, my mom, the moms in our practice that have girls that are in high school that I might start seeing at 17 or 18 years old. And I'm like, hey, if you didn't have this stuff already, we're behind the eight ball. But there's time to catch up. You know, they just recently, um, a number of months ago, but extended the vaccine itself to go up to age 45. The Absolutely. hardest part has been uh, the hardest part has been finding finding coverage from an insurance standpoint for my adult patients. Uh, previously, the vaccine had cut off at age 26, and so, um, but but we're still trying to get information out there. And again, we want people to make the right decisions. You know, you have to make your decision, but I always say follow science. And, and make sure that we're doing our job uh, because you can certainly, we're talking about potential eradication of this condition if we get properly vaccinated. Let me ask, uh, go ahead, Dr. Derry. Oh, I just want to make a quick point. I just went to a lecture a couple weeks ago uh, on HPV, and one of the things that was very astounding is the number of oral cancers that are coming from HPV. Yes. So we're Absolutely. kind of contracting that from an oral perspective, and it's real, yes. and actually, uh, especially in the, the younger ages. Now, I've talked to some of my ear, nose, and throat colleagues, and they'll tell me the cases that they had. I just had another case that was related to HPV mm -hmm. and, uh, of, of oral pharyngeal cancer. So uh, it is legit. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. Let me ask this question for you, Dr. Derry. Uh, from a general standpoint, you know, we're talking here, we're still prevention a little bit, spend a little bit more time on this topic, but from a general, pan general standpoint, in your years of practice, how are we advising women out there to lower just general cancer risk? What are we telling patients from, a, from your guys' perspective? Well, I mean, obviously, um, you know, um, being active, diet changes, you know, obesity is a huge factor. And if you look at almost every cancer out there, uh, obesity seems to have some linkage there. Um, uh, we also talk about, um, and, and a lot of times, because some patients only have an OB or gynae as their primary doctor, they still need to talk to patients about skin cancer and risks of skin exposure to uh, the sun. Your ozone has changed. And so there are other areas that you need to help prevent these kind of cancers that are very preventable. Excellent. Hey, Liz, what kind of strategies are you kind of employing in your practice uh, as far as cancer reduction from a general standpoint? Just talking a lot about stress reduction and healthy lifestyle, asking them what they're doing for themselves to maintain their health, um, and if they think that they're healthy. I think a lot of people think they are, and, you know, in reality, their perception of health is really not what they think they should be. You know, they, they actually are not as healthy as they think they are. 
You know, one of the things that I tell my patients, they may think they're out there and say, prove me wrong and let's run some baseline tests. Mm -hmm. And so I always kind of challenge people mm -hmm. when I see them at their annual physical, prove me wrong, because I want to be proved wrong. I want to tell you, I want you to do tests and things come back and I say, wow, you've really, you've really crushed it. And I want that to happen. And then they go back and I say, go back and now integrate yourself into your life. I only need 15 minutes on you, 30 minutes uh, once a year, but let's, let's focus on you and then get back and integrate into life. Let me ask this question, because uh, I get this quite a bit. Uh, from your perspective, Liz, is it okay for a woman to have just an OBGYN pro, uh, provider as her quote-unquote primary care physician? Or do you kind of, from your perspective, do you say, you know what, go see Dr. Gomez uh, or go see, uh, go see uh, uh, you know, primary care physician as a traditional sense? What's your thoughts on that? I, I prefer they have both. I really do. I, I feel like there's so many other comorbidities that need management by primary care. You guys are versed in that stuff. You see that stuff so much more often than we do. And, and um, you know, we, we should stick with kind of making sure that they're taking care of themselves, get them connected with you guys. I'm happy to work you up and then get you referred over to a primary care to make sure that you're well taken care of with Dr. Gomez. Oh, thanks for the plug, Liz. <laughs> uh, Kim, what's your thoughts on that same question? Yeah, I absolutely agree. As I mentioned earlier about that continuity of care, the best thing is when you see a couple of uh, physicians or and, and nurse practitioners, when they work together and you can actually look through a person's chart and see this patient needed to see a GI doc or they need to see the primary doctor. And then everyone's hearing the same story and they can read the same notes. And it just really helps that patient out because that might, patient might need a, um, a, a consultant or, or you know, another um, a specialist. But it puts the whole story together. And the patient feels well, well taken care of because everyone knows their story. And I think that's, that's a great thing about this collaborative effort. And one of the things that I always talk about when I see the record, I can really kind of get your kind of insight or Liz's kind of insight on things and it makes you understand a lot of times when patients do come in certainly yeah there's a lot of information that comes at them and they may not retain all that information but I'm there to be their advocate uh, we try to make sure that that if we're having a serious diagnosis that that the resources are there because sometimes you know you might give somebody a, a, a bad diagnosis and then all of a sudden the, the mind shuts off because they're just thinking about oh my gosh what just happened uh, but we want to reassure people and I tell people this there's no such thing as a topic that's off topic we want people to be comfortable talking with us about anything what's your thoughts on that Liz? Yeah I completely I, I feel like we should be the sounding board for anything that they need to get off their chest, whether it's related to their health or otherwise, and be a safe space for them to talk about anything that they need to discuss. And then if it's something that we need to find help for, whether it's physical health or psychological health, we're going to be there to make sure that their needs are met. All right. So I want to switch now to the next topic, next section, pregnancy and contraception. And we're just going to keep going through this kind of stuff. We're in a great discussion right now. So I'm going to ask this first question to Dr. Derry. Again, things that I've heard from people, and then uh, and I try to give an answer when I can. And if I can't give them an answer, I uh, have them call you up or call Liz, and that's fine. So uh, here's the question. Is it safe for women to have chemical hair treatments during pregnancy, i.e. like hair straightening treatments? What are you hearing about that? Yeah, that's an extremely common question. Um, the best thing that, that, um, that's going on now is there are a lot of natural products out there. There are very few um, 
you know, like hair dyes and, you know, straightening that actually has a lot of harsh chemicals anymore. Uh, I mean, we have uh, women that are hairdressers that, that are pregnant, so they are exposed to those products every day. And that's kind of how I kind of, you know, and so if I see a patient who is like head full of gray hair because she doesn't want to get her hair <laughs> colored, I'm like, just get your hair colored. It's fine. As long as you're not using any non-toxic products. Excellent. I like how you said that because it's true. You totally forget about it. There are women that are hairdressers that are around that stuff all the time. <laughs> And their babies turn out just fine. Uh, so excellent. Liz, let me ask you this question. Is it okay for occasional consumption of alcohol if a woman is breastfeeding? The American Academy of Pediatrics says yes. You can have small amounts of alcohol if you're breastfeeding. You just have to wait in a certain period of time before you nurse. All right. Thank you for the answer to that one. Here's the next question. Uh, Dr. Dare, we'll keep this going. I like this. All right. Is it true that some foods like soy or yams will help a woman get pregnant? <laughs> Are you hearing anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, the, the list is, is a mile long with uh, uh, different natural products or, or foods. Uh, the, the best thing I would, the best way that women could get pregnant is having regular periods. And that's kind of like, you know, uh, where it doesn't take any foods or anything like that. But um, you know, we, I always tell people that sometimes people want to get pregnant like right now and they don't want to, they, the patient's level is low. And so we really don't get excited until it's been an entire year of trying, intentional trying that it, to, to determine if there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I get that question asked all the time. Like, okay, I got to ask that question. Let me ask this question to Liz. To Liz. Hey, Liz, uh, I, I get this question asked to me a lot. I know, I, know, I, know, I, yeah, I might see women that are pregnant and then we pass them on to, to you guys, but I might get questions asked in the onset, in, in the beginning, um, especially when uh, somebody comes in, we run a urine pregnancy, pregnancy test on them. Uh, and we tell them, hey, you're pregnant, and then also these questions may come up. But are there foods that a woman can eat while pregnant? Uh, is there, like, myth versus fact? You know, what's the deal with, with eating sushi while you're pregnant? Uh, what do you hear? What are you telling your patients? Yeah, I mean, you definitely want to try to avoid food that's undercooked or raw, and that's, that's very few things that you should not eat while you're pregnant. Obviously, you, you don't want to drink alcohol when you're pregnant. Um, there are certain fish that are higher in mercury content that you want to avoid, and you'd have to eat a lot of that stuff really to, to have much concern as far as fish in general, but there are a couple of fish that are higher in mercury that you want to avoid. What's your thoughts on that one, Dr. Derry? Are there uh, foods that you think about? Um, I wanted to add to that um, uh, lunch meat. That's a huge question that everyone asks. Mm -hmm. that they want to eat lunch meat. And I, I, I just kind of make it fun for patients. And I say, look, just don't buy the sandwich from the from the gas station. <laughs> oh, God. You know? That's your bar for your sandwich from a gas station. Well, we might be offending some gas station folk right no, now. No, sorry about no, that. We're not offending nobody. No, but, um, controversial topic. Yes, it's a very controversial topic, but... Primarily because they worry about the listeria, and so I just, you know, what has been recommended in the past is at least to heat the meat or to uh, microwave it, which uh, seems to do the trick, but once again, it is very controversial. Excellent. Hey, uh, Liz, here's the next question. Is it safe to fly on an airplane while pregnant? It is safe to fly to a certain time in your pregnancy. Is there a typical time loss? Dr. Jerry, that one. I, I, I do want to, you know, one thing I counsel a lot of patients because I do see patients 
uh, that come in uh, that are from out of town, you know. And, and uh, kind of the disclaimer I would tell patients is this, yes, for the most part, you can fly. However, once you get past about 24 weeks, you have to ask yourself, if something happens, will I want to have my baby here? So if you're in Costa Rica or if you're someplace in a foreign country, for instance, and you your bag breaks, you know, because things can happen, you never know, and this baby comes out alive, you're stuck, you and the baby are stuck there. So that's kind of what I tell them. You can go, but just remember that anything can happen and would you want to be stuck there? I remember we had a, I remember we had, a, my wife and I decided to go to England to visit my brother before we had our first child, and I remember uh, I believe it might have been one of your colleagues in the practice, uh, Liz, but said, all right, you know, you fly up to this point. I was like, we got to get this trip in. I'm trying to go visit my brother. And uh, it was great because uh, I remember on the flight back, uh, they had double booked our seat. Uh, I think that was the flight back there. They double booked our seat and we got upgraded. And so I, there I am, I, me and my pregnant wife, and we get upgraded. We didn't sit next to each other, but that's all right. I think she was okay with that. But, uh, <laughs> but it was all good. And it made that flight back much more joyful. Oh, I bet. All right. Oh, I bet. Uh, let me ask this question to you, Liz. Um, what are the baby blues, and are they common? And is there a difference between baby blues and postpartum depression? Baby blues are very common, and those are typically going to happen just in a short period of time after you have a baby, and they're pretty extreme fluctuations in mood. Um, they are going to be mild to extreme, but they're very brief. You know, by the, by the two-week point after you have your baby, they should stop, and I think almost 50% of women will have the baby blues, and there's a big difference between baby blues and postpartum depression because postpartum depression can happen anytime up to the first year after you have your baby, and that can manifest in many different ways. It can manifest as a true depression. It can manifest like anxiety. It can have symptoms of irritability. Um, you can have just intense sadness and despair, hopelessness. So it can have a lot of symptoms associated with it, but it can affect your ability to function. And so it can be very difficult to manage. Liz, is there, I want to ask you a follow-up question, is there kind of a general approach when you do see a patient that may be having postpartum depression? Are you trying to do um, connect, provide resources, um, connect them with a behavioral oh, health specialist? What are, your, what, are, what are you doing? So I think between your OB-GYN and your pediatrician, a woman is being given a, a score for postpartum depression, in our area at least, a number of times throughout the first couple of months after they have a baby. So they're filling out questionnaires often to be assessed for postpartum depression in our area. And a pediatrician will actually step in on this too to make sure that a patient's being cared for and get them referred to in addition to their OB-GYN. And primary care as well if they see them in this period of time are gonna look for this as well. But um, they can be managed through talk therapy, they can see a counselor, they can use medication for management. I think you have to assess the severity and also what the patient's preference would be. I think there's a big stigma attached to medication use for postpartum depression, but in some circumstances it is going to be necessary. Excellent. Let me ask one more question on this section to Dr. Derry, then we'll take a quick commercial break. Uh, there are women who struggle with weight loss after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. How do we support and encourage women to embrace natural changes in their bodies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's a huge uh, social issue. Um, they're sort of the quintessential super moms. We see them on Facebook. We see them all over the place that I bounce back. You know, I'm, I got abs right after my baby Six was born. Six-pack abs, there Yeah, you know. and, and uh, you know, but the realities are that women should love themselves, love their bodies. There's a certain amount of 
uh, of good body fat that's needed even with breastfeeding. You know, I mean, you, you know, you don't want actually a lot of women have struggled with breastfeeding because of, you know, uh, extreme dieting after uh, delivery. And so those things are real. And so this is the time to embrace yourself, embrace your baby and, and, and just be happy with where you are. Now, once you know, uh, we want people to stay, stay active and, and uh, still, you know, watch things and not, you know, you know, lose themselves. But the bottom line is with the social pressures, I think that it has uh, made it more difficult for women to embrace the beautifulness in their bodies once they are um, uh, new mommies. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I want to take a quick, quick announcement here. Hey, you guys are listening here on Intellectual Radio. You're watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, I want to quick, uh, give a quick shout out to Suburban Gastroenterology. LTD. When, gastro when gastrointestinal problems are keeping you from living the life you love, get the experience, leading-edge care, and individualized attention you deserve with the physicians at Suburban Gastroenterology. These specialists are experienced in treating disorders of the gastrointestinal system, liver, and pancreas. They are skilled in endoscopy, colonoscopy, and, and the newest techniques of advanced therapeutics. Their state-of-the-art Endoscopy Facility Midwest Endoscopy Center is conveniently located at the Suburban Gastroenterology location of 1234, excuse me, 1243 Rickert Drive, Naperville, Illinois. Contact their practice today at 630-527-6450 or visit their website at sgihealth.com. Thank you, Suburban GI. So uh, I want to change the topics a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about perimenopause and menopause. So I'm going to come right back at you, Liz. Liz. What's the difference between perimenopause and menopause? So perimenopause can last a long period of time, and it's fluctuations in your hormone levels. So you're likely still menstruating. You can be menstruating irregularly, but you haven't stopped menstruating. So when you become menopausal, you've dropped your estrogen levels, and menopause happens when you've stopped making that estrogen and technically have gone about a year without your period. Excellent. So let me ask this question to Dr. Dr. Kim because um, when I see uh, patients come in, they'll present to me, uh, especially a menopausal uh, patient, they may present with bleeding. So my question is, say a woman is menopausal and she has some bleeding again, must that be evaluated every time? What's your thoughts on that? Um, that should be evaluated very quickly. Uh, that is something that, you know, um, the one thing about um, when women have stopped bleeding for over a year and they're at that appropriate age, which is a, roughly between 40, 50 years old for the most part, there's some women that go into menopause much later around in their mid or late 50s. But for the most part, once you have ceased having periods for over a year and then you start having you know, bleeding again, that is a, a, a warning sign and you should get evaluated quickly. Yeah, and I always tell people there's no such thing as crying wolf. If yes. something's going on, something's out of whack or something's off, something may actually be off. I tell people, trust your intuition. If mm -hmm. something's not normal and it's different, don't sit on it too long. I'd rather tell somebody that they're okay. In this mm -hmm. example, it may do some simple testing and you can give them reassurance. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd rather somebody get into your office uh, uh, sooner than later. So thank you for your answer. Let me ask this question uh, to Liz. Uh, it's more of a perimenopausal type question, but uh, to follow up what you were saying about some of the hormonal changes that happen, but women are still having their menses. So um, here's the question. Is it true that after teenagers, women in their 40s are the second largest group of women with unplanned pregnancies? I knew you were going to ask me this, and I was looking. I, I believe it is, yes. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think the, I think it is. I, I, I had that. So I've i researched that question myself, and I go, I, there actually are women in my practice that I will say, oh my gosh, you know, congratulations, because you know, hey, they might have a missed period, and we always want to say, let's just make sure we're good. And yeah, they might not want to hear that in, that information at that point, but you tell it to them. What's your, what's your approach on that one, uh, Dr. Derry, when you see that kind of uh, a woman who's thinks she might be done, or the periods might be spread spread out more, and then you tell her that she's pregnant. Right. That actually happened. <laughs> I remember vividly, it was a, a nice couple. The husband brought the wife in to me because he thought she was in menopause because she was grumpy and her periods were gone for a few months and he just wanted her to get checked out. I said, yeah, sh should I do a pregnancy test? And he said, they were like, ah, no. And I said, well, are you... Are either of you on birth control or using birth control? Oh, no. They're both, they're, 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 they they had two kids. The, the last child had just finished going to college. And uh, I did a pregnancy test. They weren't really happy with me. And they were, pot, and it was, she, uh, she was about 42. And um, and they were pregnant. And I think that they they looked like I told them that their house burned down. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I always uh, instructed patients is that just because you think you're done, if you're still having periods, it, you know, it, and if you haven't gone an entire year without periods or you don't have a uterus, you can still get pregnant. Amen. You're telling the <laughs> truth there. Well, Absolutely. I, I think uh, one of the situations that I find myself in in, in our practice is I may have a, a, a patient of mine who's recently divorced or been divorced and, and has a new sexual partner and have been all these years married, never really used protection, and, and then has a new partner and just kind of like, oh, I'm just so used to being yeah. sexually active mm -hmm. without protection, and then next thing you know, hey, you're pregnant, and it's like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, that's a very common situation. Let me ask this question to you, Dr. Doctor Derry. What are fibroids, and who gets them? Anyone can get them. Uh, there's certain uh, ethnic groups that uh, happens more commonly. Basically, they are uh, gross in the uterus, uh, which like thick, as they call fibrous type tissue. Uh, they overwhelmingly are benign, which means they're not cancerous. Um, however, they can lead to heavy bleeding. They can lead to a lot of heavy, uh, um, more painful periods every month. Um, and sometimes, depending on how they grow, they can actually get very large. You, and it can cause like abdominal girth, uh, the, your belly gets big, um, weight gain. Um, and especially for patients that want to get pregnant. Um, those fibroids can sometimes cause uh, miscarriages and, you know, um, abnormal uh, pregnancies. Liz, you're seeing patients all the time with fibroids. Uh, what are kind of the what are some of the strategies that you guys are doing in the office setting to help manage women with fibroids? Well, I think a lot of women are anxious and very apprehensive about surgery. So I think the biggest approach is going to be pain management and mostly managing bleeding. So if we can use some type of hormonal manipulation to control the bleeding, um, depending on the size of the fibroids, we might be able to do a progestin-only option like the Mirena IUD. Um, some women will respond well to like a combination contraceptive pill if their fibroids aren't too large and causing too significant of a bleeding issue and others might need a surgical intervention. Um, you know, some will do an opt for like a myomectomy where doctor will remove just the fibroid itself. And if a woman does not, you know, desire to bear any children any longer, and depending on the size, location of the fibroid, sometimes hysterectomy is the best option. 
Excellent. Thank you. So I want to switch the topic now to uh, the sexual health questions. This is our fourth segment of the topics today, but I want to talk about some things. Again, we're keeping it real, having some real talk. So I'm going to ask this question to Dr. Derry. Here we go. When during a cycle are women most fertile? Do you get that question asked to you quite a lot? Yes. <laughs> What's the answer to that? Or how do you respond anytime. to that? Anytime. <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, I, I, I just tell people, it, you know, life is not Vegas where you just want to play Russian roulette. Okay. It's just not worth it. Um, if you don't want to be pregnant, then protect yourself. Okay. It's just the bottom line. Uh, piggybacking off that question, <laughs> I'm going to come back here with another question, Dr. Deer. Here we go. When is it the safest time to have sex if you do not want to get pregnant, is there, because uh, these are questions that people ask me, and I go, you know what, you should really talk to your uh, OBGYN provider, but I say, if you don't want to be pregnant, then you need to be taking some sort of uh, contraception uh, to manage that. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure, Liz, you, you see this too, with the amount of unintended pregnancies, uh, you know, that people say, oh, well, you know, I was having, and of course, during my period, I have my pregnant. I mean, you know, it, it, there are just so many variations. Women, uh, for women to have that, that beautiful 28-day cycle is just a thing of the past. Uh, and happen. it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so to try to time that out is, I, I always tell people those kind of methods make two people uh, parents. Excellent. Liz, let me ask you this question. We know that hormone changes and stress can affect sex drive in women. How do you approach a woman with a low sex drive who desires to be in the mood more often? So that is the hot topic of the hour. That's probably one of the number one questions that I hear in the office. I think it's, it's an epidemic of women in our society, honestly, because we're overworked and we're tired and this is a big concern because we want our relationships to be healthy and I think sex is integral to our relationships and so I think that it's a disappointing thing to find that a lot of women's libido does start to decline and I think that you know we do talk a lot about good communication between them and their partners and the importance of making sure that their needs are being met at home, at work, to make sure that their stress levels are manageable and to make sure that things are sort of equal stress loads at home. So to make sure that they're not doing everything and micromanaging everything at home so they don't feel like they're bearing the weight of the entire home structure and also making time for their relationships so they can reconnect with their significant others because after babies a lot of times that connection can be lost to some degree. And I do talk a little bit about some herbal products that women can use, and that's questionable, but some women are really at the point where they'll try anything to see if they can get that libido back. I understand. Thank you very much. So what I want to do now, I want to switch to a section called Myths versus Facts. And this is something that I debuted on this show many months ago. And really, it's all about just setting the record straight. We talked about at the beginning, building trust and delivering truth. And so I want to do paging the OBGYN myths versus facts. I'm going to say a statement. It's going to be kind of rapid fire. Bam, 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 bam. And I want to see where we're at. So I'm going to say a statement. Um, my panelists will say myth or fact and give us a brief answer. Here we go. Dr. Derry, first statement for you. It is okay to drink caffeine while pregnant. Yes, minimally. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's a fact, and then they say Oh, minimal. it's a fact, yeah. 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 Uh, no, it's not a fact. Oh, it's a myth. What are you no. trying to say? Drink, is it okay? Yeah, is it, it is okay. okay. It's okay. a fact. Fair yeah. enough. Excellent. Okay. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a fact. All right, here we go, Liz. This is for you. Uh, myth or fact? Older women cannot have sex. Uh, 
to Dr. Derry's point earlier, that is a myth. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> and we just talked about that, so there we go. All right, here we go. Dr. Derry, uh, myth or fact? Women should have a pap test every year. That's a myth. Okay, please explain. Um, so the recommendations currently are uh, for um, uh, for younger women um, that, that they can have pap tests every three years. And then for um, women that are older, they can start, uh, their, the interval is even up to five years, depending on the results of their pap smear. Excellent. I remember when I was going through my training and, and then I was, I think it was in practice when they changed the guidelines from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, but so many women were so used to getting their paps on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. And when those guidelines came out, when you told people and say, hey, you don't need to get a pap, and they'd be like, what? Mm -hmm. Come on now, you're playing, you're playing. Doc, you're playing. I'm like, no, I'm not playing. You don't need a pat right now. And sometimes the disappointment. Uh, but most of my women said, thank God. Uh, we can spread out the interval. Here you go, Liz. Myth or, myth or fact. Uh, here's a statement. If you have HPV, you will get cervical cancer. That's a myth. Thank you very much. Uh, and we talked earlier about the, the role of the vaccine as a preventive strategy, but all cases of HPV uh, do not cause cancer. All right, uh, let's ask this question to Dr. Derry. Here he goes. Uh, myth or fact? Heart disease is the number one killer in women. That is a fact. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will go ahead and reference the, uh, the my women's heart show that I did back in January. Check it out on www.drmarkovas.com uh, for further details. It's the number one uh, killer of women and certainly a man. And we try to contain it, announce a campaign of awareness for women to know that every woman should know that heart disease is her number one killer. Mm -hmm. All right. Here we go. Liz, myth or fact? There's nothing I can do to prevent cancer. That's a myth. Is that a myth myth or just a myth? <laughs> I'm sorry. I said, I said, is, that, is that a double myth, a triple myth? I'm just joking. Uh, that yeah, is a myth. An, please, an please explain. Myth, yeah. <laughs> please explain. Well, I mean, you, you can live a healthy lifestyle. Obviously, there's going to be, um, you know, lifestyle changes that people might need to make. You know, eat healthy, try to keep your weight to a healthy level, exercise, don't smoke, and these things can increase the likelihood that you are going to stay healthy and have longevity. Thank you. We'll do a few more of these. Here we go, Dr. Derry. Here we go. New moms should rest for an entire month after giving birth. Myth or fact? That is a, a myth. That'd be great. I'm sure they'd love it. But <laughs> yeah, most women want to stay active. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. And you definitely encourage that to your Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, Liz, here's a statement. Um, I like this one. Here we go. Uh, wearing an underwire bra can cause breast cancer. Uh, that's a myth. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that's one of the biggest myths. Yeah. It's interesting, that comes very more historical from a generational thing. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, when I was talking to my wife when I wanted to do the show, and I mentioned that, you know, sometimes the thoughts of women's health from yesteryear, from your grandma, mm -hmm. is completely different. And that's one of the things that was, that's kind of been passed down to say, don't wear underwire bras because it's going to cause breast cancer. That is a myth-myth. Excellent. Here we go. We'll do two more of these. Dr. Derry, here we go. Uh, statement. You have to live with hot flashes even if they make you miserable. You do. That is a myth. You do not have to live like that. <laughs> there, are, there are therapies to help women. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll do this last one here, Liz, for you. Here we go. Myth or fact. Younger women can get fibroids, too. 
That's a fact. I see. I had to give you. You know, I had to give you a fact in there, Liz. Cause I was giving you all myths earlier, so I, I wanted know, to be equal opportunity employer that one. Sure. Um, so, do we know any statistics on that or anything like that about younger women getting thyroids? Oh, fibroids? I'm sure. I mean, they can start really uh, at at I believe any age, but the average age is usually going to be between age 30 and 40, and I think between age 30 and 40 is is pretty young. Okay, I, I agree as well, too. So we got about five minutes left, and so we're just having this great conversation. I'm glad we're trying to set the record straight uh, and try to really answer some of these questions that are commonly asked in our practices uh, by women that come in, in, in all of our doors. So uh, we mentioned in the beginning, we call it the chief complaint. When somebody comes in with a particular issue, we're calling this a s assessment and plan. We're going to wrap this on up. So the assessment and plan, for those out there that don't know, that's when after you're done seeing your uh, clinician, uh, you get your diagnosis, uh, and then a treatment plan or a management plan, and most importantly, a follow-up. That's huge. So I want to start with Liz uh, on the phone. Liz, give us a couple take-home points to be successful for women out there that are listening to the show. Uh, to, for, what are some take-home points for women to be successful in their health from your perspective? I think listening to their body. Um, you know, if something doesn't feel right, you really need to get it checked out. Um, prioritizing your health. Uh, we tend to take care of everybody else and not so much ourselves. And if we can't be well, we're not going to be able to maximize taking care of everybody else. And I think advocating for yourself is so important because I don't think enough people do that. Excellent. Well, thank you, Liz. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Don't hang up just quite yet. Uh, sure. And then, uh, Dr. Derry, give us a couple take-home points for women to be successful in their health. Mm -hmm. um, and I always say health is, is, is like an investment. Invest in your health. Invest in yourself. Um, a lot, most women, uh, especially once they have children, they feel like they have to sacrifice themselves. And, oh, I can't do this for myself. Or I can't. I can't go to the doctor. I gotta put my kids. Get my kids to the uh, to the doctor. And so, what I, what the important thing is, look at your health as an investment. An investment is not something you may see uh, give you a whole lot of gains in the beginning, but the overall gain is great. So, by taking care of yourself early in life will have significant gains in, in later in your life. The other thing I like uh, to say too is, you know, be kind to yourself. I think we're so hard on ourselves as women. We, we have certain body images that we want to be. Part of our sexual dysfunction that we have a lot of times is based on our body image. We don't like the way we look, so therefore we don't feel sexy. And so those kinds of things and just being kind to ourselves. And the one thing that I try to live by, and uh, Mark, I would have to tell you, you, you live by this every day, it looks like, which is do the things that make you happy. Amen. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Well, thank you, Dr. Derry, for coming on the show. My kind of final points are this. You know, each day is an opportunity to just enjoy life. Each day is an opportunity to spend time with the people that you love. But each day is an opportunity to live your personal truth. And I think when you put that front and center for your health, the possibilities that are going to come from that, the benefits, the fulfillment, the possibilities are endless. So I want people to stay motivated Keep this conversation going. Let's get healthy together. Let's continue this health revolution. So again, thank you all for listening in. You've been listening and watching live on Facebook and intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2019 by MDG Wellness, LLC. All rights reserved. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Kim Derry and Elizabeth Gall. Stay tuned for my next episode. The title is, 
occupational therapist to the rescue. Hey, everybody, have a great day. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you later. Peace out.